The following is a co-production of Belmont Council on Aging and the Belmont Media Center. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of the Talking News, stories from the Belmont Citizen Herald, read by volunteers from the Beach Street Center. This week, our readers are Claire, Max, excuse me, Max, Thomas, and Claire, reporting on news and events in Belmont. And now, on with the show. Max? Thank you, Bob. Breaking news, Belmont schools return to remote learning for the week after Thanksgiving by Franklin B. Tucker. Saying the Belmont School District was, quote, making a decision regarding the safety of students, educators, and families, unquote, Belmont Schools Superintendent John Phelan announced that all Belmont students will transition to the remote schedule for the week following Thanksgiving, November 30th to December 4th. It is not a decision we take lightly, said Phelan. We wish we, we did not have to make a decision. We are confident it is the safest choice during this time of increasing transmission rates nationally, statewide, and locally. Elementary and middle school pupils will revert back to the remote plan from their current hybrid schedule and the introduction of the hybrid model for Belmont High School students scheduled for this week will be delayed. Pre-K and LABBB will remain in person for the week. Transportation for those programs will continue as regularly scheduled. In an email to the Belmont community, Phelan noted the decision was based on six factors relating to the safety of students, educators, and families. The decision for any school district cannot hinge on a single factor, <clears throat> but rather on consideration of all factors taken together, said Phelan. Those factors include communication with families regarding their travel and hosting plans, analyzing our staffing data to get a sense of educators' travel and hosting plans, coordinating with available substitutes, seeking the advice of the Belmont Health Department, networking with other superintendents in the Middlesex League Athletic League, discussing this topic publicly at our November 24th school committee meeting. It is our hope that by being proactive and strategic in the short term, we will avoid difficulty in the long term, said Phelan. And now over to Thomas. Thank you, Max. High School Hybrid 2.0. New Plan Takes Out Lunch, Puts in the Minutes by Franklin B. Tucker. The selection of a new Belmont High School hybrid plan came down to, do, to what to do with lunch. After being presented a pair of proposals to remedy issues facing the original hybrid blueprint, the Belmont School Committee voted on Tuesday, November 17th to recommend a jury-rigged plan <clears throat> in which students will attend class in the high school building two half days a week while spending the majority of their days learning with their peers via live streaming video. The plan will need the approval of the District Teachers Union, the Belmont Education Association, as online instruction requires the union's okay through the collective bargaining process. The plan had been scheduled to go into effect during the week of November 30th. The new plan appears to accomplish what a majority of parents have been advocating since the inaugural hybrid plan was announced in August, a hefty amount of instructional time. 
originally slated at 95 minutes, the hybrid plan 2.0 will provide 170 minutes a week of instructional time, a reduction of just 10 minutes per week from the current remote plan. The approved plan was the culmination of a three-week sprint by a seven-person task force cobbled together after the school committee rescinded an earlier vote to begin the early to begin the original blueprint in early October. Quote, I think we are at the stage here where we are developing a hybrid model that will get students back into school, said Belmont High School principal Isaacs Taylor, who led the task force. After reviewing students, educators, and parents' feedback from three surveys and 11 plans from surrounding districts, the group settled on two concepts which checked off many of the boxes the task force set for itself. These included non-negotiables, such as maximizing instructional time, a balance on in-person and remote learning so all students would have the same classroom experience, as well as ensuring students would remain with their same teachers and classes as they have in remote sessions. Both options would open and close at the same time for students, 8 a.m. to 2.25 p.m. One of two equally numbered student cohorts would spend two days, quote, at school, either Monday and Tuesday or Thursday and Friday, during in-class instruction, while their counterparts would be following the lesson from home. The big difference from the current remote plan is that all students will learn the same lessons in real time through live streaming. The first option was a more traditional in-class school day with two 75-minute periods before and after a 50-minute lunch break taken in their home room. A number of parents who attended the Zoom meeting were impressed with option one, where students attended two complete days in classrooms while having lunch in the building. The second option squeezed the four 55-minute classes into a morning session. A 55-minute lunch break is used for the in-class students to head back home to begin the second round of lessons in the same classes they took that morning, this time in 20-minute blocks. When questioned on separating a daily class into 55-minute and 20-minute segments, Taylor said the morning session is that opportunity for the teachers to introduce topics and students to digest them, and then that afternoon session is a way of pulling things together. But it wasn't how subjects were going to be taught, but rather the logistics of attempting to serve lunch to 750 students and the health risks that encompasses in option one that turned out to be a no-go for the task force. In order to have lunch for everyone in school, I believe the health metrics would have to fundamentally change based on the space that we have in the high school, said Taylor. Since the field house is being used as classrooms, quote, we don't have the capacity in the school building to have lunch outside of homerooms and I don't believe that is the most effective and safest way of having lunch." End quote. Having settled on a hybrid plan 2.0 will not result in the task force shutting down, said Taylor. It will continue as, quote, this is just the first step on how the district will move learning forward in this pandemic. And now over to Claire.
Thank you, Thomas. January cardboard event will cost you to drop off the holiday packaging by Franklin B. Tucker. For the first time since it began two years ago, the next town cardboard event will have something extra. A $5 fee per resident will be required during the next drop-off day coming after the holidays in early January. While his fellow board members believe that including a fee will sow confusion and hard feelings among residents, board chair Roy Epstein is so convinced the fee-based drop-off will be a success, he pledged to make up any deficit out of his own pocket. The cardboard event, which will be the first since June, will take place on Saturday, January 9th at the Department of Public Works yard at the end of C Street. Jay Marcotte, Department of Public Works director, restated his opinion of two weeks previous on November 9th that the only practical way to hold the drop-off session is on the weekend with a fee to offset the $2,000 the event will cost the town. I would never ask the department head to agree to getting rid of planned overtime with the expectation that I was still going to offer that service, said Marcotte, who said residents are increasingly calling his office on when the next cardboard collection day will take place. Cardboard drop-offs is a relatively new service starting after the introduction of automated trash pickup in 2018. While suggestions were made to have the service during the work week, I don't see how we would be able to safely conduct an event with a couple hundred cars blocking up Waverly and C Streets, said Marcotte, noting he would be required to take a crew off their normal work schedule to run the event. Board member Tom Caputo countered the need for a fee drop-off saying, imposing onto residents a new cost would simply create confusion and frustration among the citizenry. Epstein felt that his colleague was, quote, underestimating the ability of our residents to deal with something as simple as a cardboard program. We're talking about 200 or 300 households out of 10,000 in Belmont, he said. It's a convenience for a very small number of people in the scheme of things, Epstein said. The select board's Adam Dash pondered if holding a potentially money losing fee-based event was worth doing in the first place. At $5 a pop, it's unlikely the town will see the 300 vehicles needed to break even, said Dash. I'll tell you what, Adam, I personally will make up the shortfall. You can quote me on that, said Epstein. What all sides did agree on was the need for advance notice to residents via the time, the media and town signage on a new fee. We need to be clear why this is an unusual year and this is an unusual situation and we apologize for requiring a fee, said Dash. The DPW will also set up a prepayment plan using the town's recreation department website, which can accept credit and debit cards along with information for contact tracing. That day payments will also be accepted but it will take longer to process those residents due to the information they'll need to write out the information required by the health department. Now over to Max. Thank you, Claire. When can I get my vaccine? 
ACIP, a little known but crucial advisory panel, releases first safety distribution guidelines by John Bacon. A somewhat obscure group of medical and public health professionals known as the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices is debating the crucial question on the minds of millions of Americans. When can I get a COVID vaccine? ACIP develops recommendations on the use of vaccines and at least two big pharmaceutical firms could be just weeks away from funneling their products across the US. On Monday, the committee unveiled its ethical principles for an orderly distribution of the vaccines, beginning with an estimated 21 million healthcare workers. Other groups at or near the front of the line include other essential workers, such as first responders, teachers, farm workers, and industry, sorry, energy industry workers, people with high-risk medical conditions, and people over 65. The recommendations are designed to maximize benefits, minimize harm, promote justice, and mitigate health inequalities, the committee says. Quote, I know our nation looks to you all to give your thoughtful and wise recommendation, unquote. CDC Director Robert Redfield said at the start of the meeting, I want to take a moment to underscore how important your work is. The ACIP recommendations provide public health guidance. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that use that guidance to set the U.S. adult and childhood immunization schedules based on those recommendations. The committee won't actually vote on allocation guidance until a vaccine is approved or authorized by the Food and Drug Administration. Monday's meeting was an informational meeting, one of more than 25 the group has held since April. A recent Gallup poll showed only 58% of Americans were willing to get the COVID vaccine. Vaccine hesitancy normally accompanies a country's effort to contain an infectious disease, said Ogbanaya Omenka, an associate professor and public health specialist at Butler University, who is not directly involved with the ACIP. Part of the committee's charge is to instill confidence in the vaccines, Omenka said. The role of vaccines in population health is attested to by the containment of different infectious diseases such as polio, smallpox, and measles, Omenka said. The ACIP is an important part of the vaccine adoption process. Dr. Monsef Slawi, Chief Science Advisor for the federal government's Operation Warp Speed effort to quickly provide a vaccine, stressed this week that the final determination on the order of distribution will go to individual states. Each state will independently decide, taking into account the guidance, who to immunize, Slawi said. ACIP consists of 15 experts who are voting members primarily responsible for the vaccine recommendations. The Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services selects the committee through an application and nomination process. 14 of them have expertise in vaccinology, immunology, pediatrics, internal medicine, nursing, family medicine, virology, public health, infectious diseases, or preventative medicine. One member is a consumer advocate providing perspectives on the social and community aspects of vaccination. In addition to the voting members, there are 30 non-voting representatives from professional organizations that are highly regarded in the health field. They comment on ACIP's recommendations and offer the perspectives of groups that will implement the recommendations. 
Pfizer slash BioNTech has applied for F US Food and Drug Administration emergency authorization for a vaccine that could move forward by mid-December. Moderna says it will seek FDA authorization for its candidate soon. Other candidates are not far behind. Slawi said 20 million Americans could be vaccinated next month. ACIP develops vaccine recommendations for children and adults, including the ages when the vaccine should be given, the number of doses needed, the amount of time between doses, and precautions and contraindications. The, role, the influence or role of ACIP in vaccine approval is sort of indirect, Omenka said. Their recommendations are still weighed further before final decisions are made. Over to you, Claire. Sorry, Thomas. Millions Seek Help to Avoid Going Hungry on Thanksgiving by Joel Shannon and Keith Beery-Golick. <clears throat> a little more than a week before Thanksgiving, a line formed outside the Free Store Food Bank in Cincinnati. Before the pantry opened, the temperature was 42 degrees. Are you here for food? Customers were asked when they walked in. The answer was a consistent yes. At the beginning of the pandemic, the food bank provided for 100 to 125 people a day. Recently, it served 374 on a single day. For some in line, the experience was a new embarrassment they didn't want to discuss. For others, it was a monthly trip, part of their survival. Marquette Brandt was allowed 35 pounds of groceries, but she took less. She works at Sam's Club, but in March, her hours were cut. In May, she came to the food bank for the first time. Waiting in line, Brant stood under a sign with bold white letters that said hope. For her, hope is the tuna and noodles she had for dinner the night before, made with groceries she received from the food bank. It's a story playing out across the nation this Thanksgiving. More Americans are in need of help to avoid going hungry amid the economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. A Feeding America analysis estimates that 15 million more people will live in food insecure homes in the US this year compared with pre-pandemic estimates. Quote, food banks have consistently seen a 60% increase in demand compared to this time last year and continue to require more food and resources to provide to people in need, the organization said in a news release days before Thanksgiving. The US Census reported in the week before Thanksgiving that about 12% of adults in American households with children received free groceries or a free meal the previous week, according to a survey conducted from October 28th to November 9. About one of every four households in Rhode Island struggled over the summer to put food on the table, according to a report released Monday. Despite federal assistance, 25% of households in the state were worried about having adequate food, up from 9.1% last year, and the highest level of food insecurity in 20 years, according to the Rhode Island Community Food Bank's annual status report on hunger. 
The survey found food insecurity caused by the pandemic has hit families of color particularly hard. Food charities reported record demand before Thanksgiving. In Arizona, a two-mile line of cars waited to receive food from St. Mary's Food Bank when holiday distribution started at 8 a.m. in Phoenix on Monday. Jerry Brown, a spokesperson for the food bank, said the record-breaking number of people would be served in a contactless delivery system that works like, quote, a NASCAR pit stop. The demand shows that a lot of people who used to be donors and volunteers are now in these cars getting food, Brown said. In Ohio, the Army National Guard helped with food distribution in the Akron-Canton region. During a drive-through distribution before Thanksgiving, the line of cars stretched for a mile. Hundreds of people slept, listened to the radio, talked with passengers or played with their phones and waited. Some of them had been there for more than four hours. In rural California, at least one food bank braced for a food cliff that would leave it unable to serve clients heading into the new year. The food cliff is looming, said Nicole Celaya, executive director of Tulare County Food Link. The food system hasn't done a very good job of meeting the increased need. As COVID numbers continue to rise, it's going to get worse. For those who can help, Feeding America, which describes itself as the largest hunger relief organization in the USA, encourages volunteering or donating. In Petal, Mississippi, the Petal Children's Task Force gave away 325 boxes of Thanksgiving food to restaurant residents, 75 more boxes than last year, according to Executive Director Damaris Lee. Quote, We've got a lot of people who have been cut in hours, some that have lost their jobs, and they come to us not wanting to ask the food, but they have to, Lee said. That's what we are here for. The organization depends on donations to provide help to those in need. We need food, Lee said. We can use all kinds of food. We have a cooler, we have a freezer. And now over to Claire. Thank you, Thomas. Cat owners and allergen sensitivities don't have to go hand in paw anymore. Backed by more than one decade of research, a new cat food reduces allergens in cat hair and dander by Avery Allswell. New squeaky toy? Check. Annual vet appointment scheduled? Check. Pet owners routinely go out of their way to keep their furry friends healthy and happy. According to a 2019-20 survey by the American Pet Products Association, 67% of U.S. households have pets. And while that's a lot of belly rubs, the proven health benefits of pet ownership make it well worth the effort. But what if cuddling with your four-legged friend is difficult because you're sensitive to cat allergens? As many as one in five adults globally share this issue to some degree. And it's threatening to break the bond between owners and their cats. Cat owners are not easily deterred, though, as a new survey conducted by Purina ProPlan and the Human Animal Bond Research Institute proves. 
The survey of 2000 cat owners set out to understand the effect of cat allergens on pet owning households. And the results show just how strong the human feline bond really is. With 90% of respondents saying their cats were part of their family. Like 37% of cat owners with sensitivities to cat allergens survey in Habry's study, in Engelhorn changed her lifestyle to accommodate her cats. Her attempts including limited time spent with them in addition to plenty of painstaking cleaning efforts. Meanwhile, in St. Louis, Yu Zhu faced another common hurdle in the cat owner equation. He and his girlfriend wanted to move in together, but his sensitivity to cat allergens made life with feline companions a huge obstacle. Because Zhu struggled to manage the cat allergens at home, the couple contemplating sending the cats to live with a relative. Around this same time, Zhu heard about a trial for groundbreaking approach to the age old cat allergen problem and decided to give it a try so they could live together as a family, fur babies and all. Thanks to Live Clear, Zhu and his girlfriend were able to avoid having to send their cats to live elsewhere. For more than a decade, scientists at Purina have been creating and refining a nutritional approach that could significantly reduce cat allergens. Now that innovation is available to cat owners everywhere in the form of Purina Pro Plan Live Clear, the world's first and only cat food shown to replace allergens in cat hair, reduce allergens in cat hair and dander. So how did Live Clear help actual cat owners who were used to dealing with allergen sensitivities? I would never have guessed that a cat food could help me have a wonderful quality of life with my cats, said Engelhorn. I'm glad I gave it a chance. And if anybody is desiring to have a cat in their life and wasn't able to, this is the way to go. Thanks to Live Clear, Zhu and his girlfriend were able to avoid having to send their cats to live elsewhere. For the first time, Zhu can peacefully coexist on the couch with his newly close feline companions. It's made a huge difference, he said. For you and his girlfriend and their cats, the change has been a win-win-win. Engelhorn is also enjoying bonding with her cats without having to sacrifice any of those sweet kitty cuddles. It's so exciting. I thought the way I lived before was fine because I love cats so much but this is a whole different ball game. Now, here's Max. Thank you, Claire. The 10 best Christmas movies of all time ranked, ranked by Brian Truitt. Santa Claus is coming to town, but you still have plenty of time to seek out all sorts of holiday movie fare. They're the classics naturally, like Macaulay Culkin taking on dim-witted crooks in Home Alone, or Bill Murray's self-centered TV executive learning a thing or two about the meaning of Christmas in Scrooged, a take on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, sort of. Or maybe you want a more modern option, Hallmark's Countdown to Christmas and uh, Lifetime's It's a Wonderful Lifetime-themed slate of movies offer both an, L both offer an LGBTQ couple in a major storyline. 
Heck, Netflix is pretty much an annual treasure trove of streaming yuletide cheer. This year, instead of a lump of coal, Dolly Parton unleashes her musical Christmas on the Square, and Kurt Russell returns as an action-ready Santa in the sequel, The Christmas Chronicles, Part Two. In honor of the season, let's rank the 10 best Christmas movies ever. Number 10, A Christmas Story, 1983. Full disclosure, I despised this movie as a kid who wasn't into BB guns or leg lamps. As an adult, the comedy resonates more as an ode to the exhaustive nature of being a parent around the holidays and how everybody's just trying to get by at the holidays, even the tired mall Santa. Number nine, 1951's A Christmas Carol. Among the various traditional versions of the Charles Dickens classic from the Muppet Christmas Carol to the excellent George C. Scott TV movie, this one cuts right to the dark tones of the original text with Scrooge, Alistair Sim, living through an insightful horror film to come out the other side as a better man. Number eight, The Apartment, 1960. The romantic dramedy stars Jack Lemmon as a nebbish office drone known for lending out his place for bosses to take their mistresses. He puts the focus back on himself when he starts to fall hard for an elevator girl played by Shirley MacLaine, whom the big boss, Fred McMurray, secretly takes to the love den on Christmas Eve. Number seven, Die Hard, 1988. Heck yeah, this is a Christmas movie, just in case there was any doubt. And sorry, Santa, no one squeezes through tight places in a building to get the job done. In the case of this classic action film, thwarting terrorists and saving his estranged wife, better than Bruce Willis's iconic John McClane. Number six, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, 1989. Anyone who's ever try, tried entirely too hard during the holidays can empathize with Clark Griswold, Chevy Chase, and his hilarious battles to redecorate his house, deal with wacko relatives, we all have our own cousin Eddie, Randy Quaid, and have the merriest Christmas imaginable, with himself often acting as his greatest foe. Number five, Miracle on 34th Street, 1947. If you can withstand the gratuitous hokiness there's an intriguing law and order episode to be had here with Chris Kringle himself, Edmund Gwynn, doing a little too good of a job replacing a drunk Macy's parade Santa and gets put on trial for mental instability when he insists he's the real deal. Number four, Love Actually, 2003. Often imitated, never duplicated. Intertwining tales of love featuring Brits and others conjure all sorts of holiday emotions, some happy, others melancholy, and all are entirely manipulative. But watching a little boy race through Heathrow to find his crush, or seeing Andrew Lincoln's silent ode to Kira Knightley and stalking, you're too busy being bombarded by feels to care. Number three, Elf, 2003. For our money, the closest this century we've had to an honest-to-goodness holiday classic. Will Ferrell has one of his best roles as a naive, overgrown elf who finds out he's actually human, and the hijinks that follow when he's introduced to civilization are filled with heart, humor, and childlike wonder. Number two, It's a Wonderful Life, 1946. The Citizen Kane of Christmas films, though in this case, Everyone has seen George, Jimmy Stewart's heavenly journey as George Bailey. 
Akin to the Scrooge model in its focus on the significance of second chances with a man being shown how bad life would have been if he had not been bored, this thing will straight up pull the Christmas spirit kicking and screaming out of you. And number one, Scrooged, 1988. Born out of 80s greed through time, though timeless in its relevancy, Scrooged is a pitch-perfect blend of slapstick and black humor, love and loss, life and death, that has no business being as astounding as it is. It is superbly cast from Bill Murray's modern Scroogey Frank Cross to Carol Kane's adorably sadistic fairy. And if you're not welling up by the time, put a little love in your heart kicks in, you might be visited by three ghosts yourself. These opinions are not those of Belmont Media Center or me. And now over to Thomas. Thank you, Max. <laughs> Belmont Public Schools schedule a public meeting on December 9th. This meeting is geared to help residents to understand the financial condition of the town. The town is faced with a structural deficit which requires an increase in funds to provide the same level of services to the community. This meeting is geared to help residents to understand the financial condition of the town. Future meetings are in the planning stages for early January. To participate in the meeting, um, which is on Zoom, go to https colon forward slash forward slash us02web.zoom.us forward slash j forward slash 841-3786-5613. If you have Zoom on your device, join meeting ID 841-3786-5613. To join by telephone, call 929 2056099 and enter the meeting number, which is again 841-3786-5613 and, and hit the pound key. Once in the meeting to ask a question or raise your hand, enter star nine on your phone. And now back to Claire. Thank you, Thomas. A family rescues Kemp's Ridley at Rock Harbor, Orleans. A family on a bike ride Wednesday stopped at Rock Harbor for a look-see around and found an unexpected visitor stuck under the pier, a Kemp's Ridley sea turtle that had washed ashore. As Bev White, an Orleans resident who happened upon the scene described it, dad and son waded out to rescue it covered it in straw to warm it up and called Mass Audubon's Wildlife Helpline. A volunteer from Wellfleet Bay Wildlife Sanctuary prepares to transport a Kemp's Ridley sea turtle from Rock Harbor. They dispatched a trained turtle rescue volunteer who arrived quickly, bundled up the little guy in a towel and rushed him back to Wellfleet Bay Wildlife Sanctuary. Once stabilized, the Kemp's turtle will be sent to the New England Aquarium in Quincy for rehabilitation before being returned to the sea. Now, over to Bob. 
Thank, thank you, Claire. We hope you enjoyed this week's Talking News. You can listen and watch Talking News on Mondays and Tuesdays at 4.30 p.m. on Channel 9 on Comcast and Channel 29 on Verizon. You can also listen to the Talking News anytime on the BMC Podcast Network, on iTunes, or at belmontmedia.org forward slash podcasts. Tune in next week. I'm Bob Fellerman.